This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances. Hey, is this thing on? Welcome to Maddox on the Mic, a legal podcast presented by Maddox, an independent Australian law firm. Hello and welcome to Maddox on the Mic. Today on the Future of Aged Care podcast, we'll be talking about quality and safety issues that have been identified by the Royal Commission and responded to by the Australian Government. My name is Elizabeth Blanche and I'm a Senior Associate in the Maddox Healthcare team. At Maddox, we have many clients in the aged care sector and we feel very privileged to work alongside them in many ways, from buying and selling aged care businesses, advising on compliance and complaints and drafting bespoke agreement. Also joining me today is Angela Wood, a partner in our healthcare team, and Alexandra Adams, a senior associate in our healthcare team. Welcome to you both. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Elizabeth. It's no surprise um, that quality and safety issues were a focus uh, of the Royal Commission's recommendations, and it's something we certainly expected to see. Uh, One of the first activities that the Royal Commission undertook Um, at the very beginning, was a broad survey of providers asking about occasions of so-called substandard care over the past seven years. And these occasions of substandard care became a focus of the case studies in the hearings, particularly in the first half of the Royal Commission, and were reported on in detail in the interim report entitled Neglect. I thought maybe um, to begin with, Alexandra, you could tell us a little bit about some of the recommendations of the Royal Commission flowing from those case studies and hearings more broadly. Um, Yes, of course, Elizabeth. So, well, we were expecting that the Royal Commission would make recommendations that call for a complete overhaul of the current system rather than um, recommending minor amendments. And this is because of the wide range of issues that the Royal Commission identified with quality and safety So as part of that complete overhaul, the commissioners have recommended that the Aged Care Act is replaced with a new rights-based act, which puts the person receiving the care and services at the centre of the decision-making. The commissioners recommended that the new act should provide the primary considerations should be, firstly, ensuring the safety, health and well-being of people receiving care, and secondly, putting older people first so that their preferences and needs drive the delivery of care. The commissioners also recommended amending the safety and quality standards, defining characteristics of high-quality aged care that is designed to meet the needs and aspirations of people receiving care. And this kind of attitude towards putting people at the front of their care decisions has been a direction that aged care in general has been going for a few years. So you see it in the CDC space with home care, um, and and there's also been a focus on it in RESI, Um, but it looks like it'll kind of be translating to um, a really significant part of the new Aged Care Act. Yeah, it's really interesting to see and really it's a really positive change to see that, you know, we're having a whole new Aged Care Act and this will really be at the centre of of the drafting. So I think that's that's a really pleasing um, outcome um, of of what we've heard from the Royal Commission. Alexandra, what was the Australian government's response um, to, to those recommendations? So they've basically accepted those recommendations and accepted that a new act is going to be developed and theoretically will be in place July 2023, depending, of course, on parliamentary process and um, stakeholder consultation, which, I mean, if you, can, if you think about the size and complexity of the Aged Care Act at the moment, that'll be a really significant undertaking. 
And one that hasn't happened since, um, I mean, the Aged Care Act got put in place in 1997. There's been lots of tinkering around the edges since then, but um, a full-scale rewrite is going to be a pretty big undertaking. And as part of that um, consultation process, the, um, the government's also said that there's going to be kind of consultation with stakeholders as well about the definition of high-quality care to be reflected in the Acton standards. And they've suggested that as part of this responsibility for setting clinical standards, um, should move uh, from the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission to the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. Yeah, okay, that's that's really interesting. And drawing on that that issue of sort of high quality care, um, I understand that there um, there was a recommendation that um, there be a duty to provide high quality and safe care. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what the Royal Commission said about that? Yeah, so I think this is going to be a really interesting change and one that providers should really. Um, keep at the front of their mind in the next few years. But the Royal Commission's recommended that there should be a positive statutory duty on approved providers to ensure that personal care and nursing care they provide is safe and of high quality, so far as is reasonable, taking in consideration the person's wishes and any foreseeable risks. The Commission also recommended that the provider should have a duty to ensure that any person providing aged care services has the appropriate experience, skills, training and qualifications to provide care. The Commission envisages that a failure to comply with this duty and where that failure exposes residents to a risk of harm will expose a provider and its key personnel to a civil penalty at the suit of the regulator. The the provider may also be required to compensate a resident harmed by the failure. So the Australian government's accepted this recommendation and this is a pretty significant increase in the scope of the regulator to enforce the kind of obligations under the Aged Care Act and I think it'll make um, key personnel and approved providers much more aware of what they need to comply with when they've got this kind of general positive statutory duty hanging over them. And speaking of sort of additional regulation, I thought it might be useful to move to uh, the Serious Incident Response Scheme, which has recently been front of mind for the sector and um, which Angela, I might might ask you about, given the work you've been doing um, on on this issue. So one of the key issues that the Commission noted on many occasions throughout the course of the, the hearings was the apparent lack of transparency and accountability in reporting matters of concern in, in residential aged care facilities. And in particular, the Commission um, raised concerns about the lack of mandatory reporting, particularly for resident-to-resident aggression in residential aged care, which which um, unfortunately is something um, that we heard happens quite frequently. Angela, has the government responded to to these concerns that arose uh, in the Royal Commission around resident-to-resident aggression? Yes, Elizabeth. One of the earliest responses of the Australian government was to announce that it would implement a serious incident response scheme, and that scheme would require providers to have a comprehensive incident management scheme and to report to the Quality and Safety Commission on a broader range of incidents, including unexpected deaths of residents, neglect, the unreasonable use of force and stealing or financial coercion. So there are now several, seven types of incidents that providers are required to report on. The scheme commenced on April this year and there are two kinds of reportable incidents. The first of those are priority one incidents So the kind of incidents needing to be reported within 24 hours and that reporting obligation is already in place. From the 1st of October in 2021, 
priority two incidents covering the same kinds of incidents but not being meeting that definition will also need to be reported within a 28-day period. There are new comprehensive obligations on providers as well for open disclosure, consultation where those incidents occur and documentation of the incidents. Yeah, so that, that, that's interesting, Angela. And obviously we won't have any data yet um, on those priority two incidents because that doesn't kick off until October. Is there any information about the types or kinds of incidents that are being reported so far? There is. So the most common type of incident was unreasonable use of force, 41%, followed by neglect um, being 24%. And, and probably the unreasonable use of force reflects the fact that it may now be mandatory to report resident-on-resident resident use of force, whereas previously there was an exception to reporting those. And when you consider those incidents that are being reported, that represents about 2.25 Priority 1 notifications per provider during that period. So, Angela, do you mind if I just jump in there? So are those um, statistics on um, the 41% being unreasonable use of force, um, so does that include the, the, do you think that probably includes the reporting that was out of scope? So it seems like there's a lot of out of scope so far. There has been a lot out of scope, but those statistics actually only relate to the in-scope notifications. Yeah. So right. they relate to those 1,876 or 42% that were in scope um, have been analysed by the Commission. And Angela, what are you seeing with, with providers in the sector? I mean, how have they been responding to the scheme in these early days? Have they been reporting a lot? It seems like perhaps they have been. Look, I think the statistics actually speak to this point, Elizabeth. Um, providers are telling us that where they're not sure as to whether it's in scope or not, um, they are reporting and, and that's sort of being seen in those figures that have been reported. Probably a num many of those that fell outside of the priority one notifications will in fact be priority two and will need to be reported from um, the 1st of October this year. It's also interesting to note that the Commission is currently undertaking a consultation on the implementation of a similar scheme in the home care services. So it will be interesting to see where that, that goes and what that scheme might look like. Thank you, Angela, for taking us through those statistics. It's really interesting to, to see what's being reported and also interesting to hear what you're seeing um, from providers um, with this new scheme. Um, it, it might be a good time now maybe to move to the regulation of, of restraints. Um, and, and as you both know, the Royal Commission identified the overuse of restraints and the regulation of restraints as one of its four key priority areas that require immediate attention from the government. Um, Ali, I'm wondering, could you t take us through how the government responded to this issue? Yeah, so the, um, the Australian government responded to this issue early and during the course of the Royal Commission. And that's probably reflective of how important it saw this issue as. It was the type of thing that would make, you know, front page headlines on the ABC. Um, um, it's a pretty shocking, shocking thing to see, um, uh, restraints being misused. 
And so the response was to introduce regulation of the use of physical and chemical restraints into the quality of care principles in 2019. Now, the quality of care principles, they were due to be repealed on 1st of July 2021. Uh, However, the Commission recommended that the repeal and replacement of the principles be delayed until 2022. The delay and repeal was intended to implement recommendations uh, that the use of restrictive practices in aged care must be based on an independent assessment and recommended a scheme that's similar to that that's um, been used in the NDIS for a few years now. And Alexandra, what are we seeing? I mean, what, what did the Australian government um, say in its response to these particular recommendations around restraints? So it accepted the need to overhaul the principles and the kind of regime around restraints, but it didn't wait until um, 2022 when the Commission suggested to do so. And in fact, the government already has amended the Act and the Quality of Care Principles to introduce the changes to the regulation of restrictive practices. So the changes are going to occur in two phases, the first of which commenced on 1st of July 2021 and the second in September 2021. Providers should really be looking at their policies now to prepare for these impending changes that are going to come on board pretty soon. So essentially under the new uh, regime, Restrictive practices can only be used as a last resort and only when necessary to prevent harm by the person to themselves or others. As recommended by the Royal Commission, the changes align the aged care regime more closely with the NDIS regime. Yeah, that's it's really interesting to hear, um, Alexandra. And it's not, it's sort of, it seems there are a lot of um, similarities between or increasing number of similarities between the NDIS regulation and perhaps the aged care regulation. And we're sort of seeing we might see at least the aged care space sort of borrow somewhat from the NDIS space in terms of some of the some of the regulation. Perhaps Angela, um, you could tell us a little bit more about the changes and how they align more closely with the NDIS scheme. Thanks, Elizabeth. That is a really interesting point. And clearly the Australian government has picked up on the Royal Commission's recommendations in making changes to the principles. The most obvious changes are to the definitions and the framework. So rather than calling them the regulation of restraint, it's picked up on those NDIS definitions of restrictive practices while keeping five kinds of restraint defined underneath that. Probably the most significant changes are to the requirement for a care plan to now have in place a behaviour support plan for a resident who for whom restrictive practices are deemed to be necessary. That behaviour support plan must set out the best practice interventions that providers have used to try to address the behaviours of concern before considering the use of any restraint. And that's clearly in line with a policy that is endeavouring to minimise and to the extent possible phase out the use of restraints. There's also a requirement to have an independent assessment to determine that the restraint is in fact necessary and it can only be used in those circumstances where there is determined to be a risk to the safety of that particular resident or to other care recipients as well. The behaviour support plan also requires the provider to document its consultations with the resident where, where the resident has capacity with their family members or other carers. Um, And once implemented, there are requirements for documenting each use of a restraint and requirements for regular consultation, monitoring and review. 
Yeah, so that, that's that's an interesting, um, you know, interesting insight there, Angela. And, and I know consent was has been, a, you know, a concern um, of some providers um, in the sense that the pr- principles previously in place weren't particularly clear about what consent requirements um, were needed for the use of restraints. Has that particular issue been addressed in the new restrictive practices regime? Yes, it has, Elizabeth. So where previously the principals talked potentially about consent from an authorised representative, it's now been made clear that consent must be obtained and documented in accordance with state and territory laws, which are different in each particular state and territories. In most cases now, that requires a guardian with a restrictive practices power to be able to lawfully give consent. In relation to chemical restraint consent requirements, you might recall the early Brian King Gardens case study, which looked closely at consent requirements and found that a resident had been prescribed an antidepressant without the consent of the family. The regime now makes it very clear that consent for chemical restraint must be obtained by the medical practitioner or nurse practitioner. And it also refers to other laws which govern those consent requirements for registered health practitioners. But there are now obligations for approved providers to consult with the medical practitioner or the nurse practitioner and to be sure that consent has lawfully been obtained before implementing the use of chemical restraint. And I think in talking to providers that have variable issues around consultation with Uh, medical practitioners, there'll need to be a greater interaction between those approved providers and the medical practitioners to document um, the assessments that have been undertaken and that consent has in fact been obtained. Yeah, it's interesting to see some of those changes and hopefully hopefully it will, um, you know, improve um, how and when um, restraints are being used. We're sort of getting to the end of our time here, but in summing up, I'd just like to say that, you know, it does seem that the Australian government has moved quite quickly in responding to the Royal Commission's recommendations around reporting incidents and the need to minimise restrictive practices, which is really, um, really pleasing to see. Um, And there are new compliance obligations, obviously, that providers really should be um, getting familiar with now. In closing, I'd like to ask each of you what your own thoughts are about the changes that are facing approved providers um, and and around compliance and any um, any observations that you can make from what you're seeing um, from from your clients. Maybe Alexandra, we'll start with you. Yeah, sounds good, Elizabeth. So, look, I really think the introduction of the general statutory duty together with the civil penalty provisions um, is going to be such a significant change. It gives the Act and the regulator much more teeth than the current Act and the general statutory duty is going to allow the regulator to take a more holistic approach to assessing compliance. Uh, And this is as opposed to focusing on a rigid set of standards. The regulator is going to be able to assess the overall quality and safety of the care that um, providers provide. I suppose in an ideal regulator world, they'll move from the, the... approach to regulation of the tick box exercise where they copy and paste certain things into the accreditation reports and you tend to see the same sort of statements over and over again in different facilities and they'll move to more of a process of looking at the service from a holistic um, approach and making an assessment of whether or not that provides standards of care that 
align with community expectations and expectations of families and residents. So I think that means for providers that they're going to need to take a similar approach to the regulator and also approach, uh, and also focus on the care that they they provide as a as a whole to residents rather than focusing on kind of a, a tick box compliance exercise. And Angela, any sort of final or closing remarks from your perspective? In thinking about those changes that we've talked about today, Elizabeth, I think it's of real importance for boards and executive teams of our clients and other providers to be aware of and consider what these new requirements mean in terms of their own understanding of those obligations. Um, They'll need to consider what systems and processes are in place for these across their organisations to ensure that they are being complied with and also to ensure that they are getting the information they need about um, incidents that are being reported, about the trends that are being analysed through the new incident management requirements, and to really be aware of um, the use of restrictive practices across their organisations as well. Um, It's certainly our experience that when there are failures in these areas, that those obligations are sheeted home to boards and executives through Standard 8 of the aged care standards, which focuses on compliance. So I think that's an area that needs to be looked at carefully by boards and executive teams to ensure that the organisations they have governance of are meeting all of those new obligations. Thank you, Angela and Alexandra, for your, um, your insights today. I think that's all we've got time for. We hope you enjoyed the episode and learnt something new. If you have any questions, please head over to the Maddox website where you can get in touch with me or any member of the healthcare team. Please look out for our upcoming podcasts on the Future of Aged Care podcast. And if you like this episode, please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Maddox on the Mic. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to maddox.com.au forward slash podcast to subscribe. If you'd like more information on any of the topics discussed in today's episode, visit the Maddox website, maddox.com.au.